Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. If you continue with the negative talk, it just reinforces itself. So stop, acknowledge it, and stop. And the drop is you drop into your breath. And the self-compassion kind of mantra is, this is a moment of pain. Everybody feels pain. I'm not alone. And may I be kind and gentle to myself. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Culture is the social contract you have with your team. Self-compassion is the social contract you have with yourself. But what does it mean to be compassionate? How the heck do you actually get more of it and make it a habit or a part of your team's everyday culture? In this episode, Kevin Ayers, executive coach and former managing director of LinkedIn Europe, joins us to explore tons of different practices to help you cultivate more compassion. We cover ways to eliminate negative self-talk and self-doubt. We talk about how to increase compassion in your team, how to bridge the gap and bring the more aspirational parts of your culture closer to reality, and how to identify the top three behaviors that help you succeed as a leader. There are so many great practices that you can immediately apply from this conversation. So have a little fun and really give them a try while you're listening. Enjoy this conversation with Kevin Ayers. Welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. We've planned today to talk about culture and self-compassion, but before we dive into some of those topics, first off, just to begin, the arc of your professional journey is, is fascinating. And so I was hoping we <laughs> could start by diving into to your story first. You were an engineering manager and engineering director for a while, and then you became the first managing director of LinkedIn Europe and the, the first employee for LinkedIn outside of the US. And now you're an executive coach. So can you bring us into a little bit about your journey from engineering leadership to executive coaching? Tell us a little bit more about your background there. Yeah. So my trajectory wasn't a straight line, which I think most people have that non-linear path. I'll start way back you know, in school, I hated school. I was dyslexic, did not do well in school. But senior year of high school, this was back in the 80s, right? Computers weren't so weren't so prevalent. A teacher asked me, he's like, you know what, I think you should take this programming class. And it was in basic, right? It was only one class, that was it. And it was obvious. And it was the first time that I had come across something from a school related topic that was obvious. You know, it just felt like, doesn't everybody understand this? And so that led me to computer science degree. Then I worked at Compact Computers in the early 90s. And this this was, a you know, when PCs were, you know, the cutting edge. 486 processor had come out. And Compaq was really on that cutting edge. From there, we spun out AltaVista as a separate company from Compaq Computers. And I was part of that original team that was able to spin out AltaVista. And so I was engineering with shopping.com, which was owned by AltaVista at the time. 
transferred over to Europe. And the funny thing was, is I went to Europe for 18 months to run engineering over there, stayed there for 13 years. So this is a, you know, short term step turned into something really big. And while I was at Alta Vista running international for engineering, then the opportunity came up to actually be the general manager for Alta Vista. And that that was my big transition from engineering technology to running the business. And, you know, that was that was a giant leap forward. So it was still a very technical company. And then from there, I kind of ended up being the international guy. So from Alta Vista, ended up working with uh, Sidestep, which is now Kayak, and ran international for them. And then when LinkedIn was expanding internationally, then in 2007, there was a call for, you know, who's the leader? By that time, it's like, oh, okay, this is the third time now starting or, you know, running international. That was the arc for me which was moving into general management, but was always with technology companies. And so I felt engineering and having that background, not just in engineering, but in product, it was a huge advantage because I always looked at, you know, the business from a perspective of what's our product? How are we actually creating this? And, and what's the technology behind it? Help me be a much better general manager for sure. I have a dovetail question related to the engineering experience or the the capacities you built in engineering leadership that equipped you for the international GM role. When you look back on that experience, were there specific experiences as an engineer or engineering leader or the capacities that you built or the habits that you developed that equipped you for that jump? You know, it was looking at, you know, what's the real root of the problem, not just here's what we're experiencing, but it was really about tracing things back. And it was funny, I heard this from one of the people actually in an ELC conference, or not, not a conference, but in our ELC leadership groups. It stuck with me. He said, you know, we're engineers and sometimes we solve problems through code. And I was like, oh, I love that, you know, that statement. And so I think, you know, the whole thing around focusing on what was the real problem we're trying to solve, it really helped me. And then being able to understand that not every problem is really easy to understand. And so we need to take, you know, many different steps in order to get there. And that they're not always going to work out. So we have to deal with failure all along the way, you know, so that was a big piece of it. But the other thing is, you know, we would deal with very complex problems, all the way back at compact computers, we were working with Intel and Microsoft quite closely. And so it was like, how do we work with multiple, not just organizations internally, but externally, and so that helped me really understand, you know, a much wider scope of business in that, you know, we can't just solve everything ourselves. We actually need other people to help solve, you know, these bigger problems. And so I took a lot of those lessons from engineering and product over to the business side. I think that's really great because we, we have a lot of folks listening in from very different points of, of their career. I know you'd mentioned the leadership group that you're a part of. I'm a part of a, a few other engineering leadership peer groups that we lead. And the big question oftentimes comes up is how do I prepare myself for the next role or what skills am I building now are going to transfer to something completely different and sort of that existential question of what next comes up quite a bit. And so hearing your perspective and journey there is really helpful, I think, for folks in that space. So how did you go from transitioning from engineering leadership to business leadership to then executive coaching? Was it the sort of same idea of identifying and solving the root problems, but the, it's a sort of a different category of, of challenges? Or what was the journey there? The journey with that was after exiting with LinkedIn, then it was more of, well, what are the expectations that other people have? And after, you know, good, fair number of successful exits, what do you do? Okay, invest. 
you know, so I was doing more angel investing. And what I ended up, you know, noticing is that whenever I would invest in companies, then I ended up working with their leadership. I found the investing intellectually stimulating, but ultimately not that fulfilling. And what I really loved was that one-on-one connection with other people. And then that led me to coaching. And so I would kind of inevitably just coach the the CEOs because I wanted to make sure the companies were successful because I just put money into it. (laughs) But I also loved that the whole arc of innovation that was there. And so I ended up coaching. But what I found is that while I would coach from a standpoint of what's the product, what's the problem you're trying to solve, I found that there was always a space for oh, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the, I, I don't know the answer to this problem. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what strategy we should have. I'm not sure of X, Y, Z. There was that question of, am I the wrong person for this role? I was like, ah, I've certainly been here before. And through my engineering time and through general management of the leadership, it was always what I love, the innovation product development, how to find potential in people and introduce them to their own potential. And so I ended up getting into coaching CEOs and execs kind of by accident, but that's the work that I found just really fulfilling. And it was that, how do you relate to your job? How do you relate to the position? How, do you, how are you relating to other people? And it was that personal introspection that is really what I love much more. And so now as I'm coaching, I'll tell people, I'm not your business coach and I'm not your therapist. I've been in your seat before, similar seats. And so I can help normalize the challenge that comes up. And, you know, we'll maybe spend about 20% of the time on business, but much more it's about how are you relating to the business and the other people in your role? And so that's what I found just, I still find just immense learning for myself and fulfillment by helping other people navigate that. Well, I think the the last notion that, you brought up sort of transitions really well to the topics that I think we wanted to spend some time diving into around culture and self-compassion because they're not so much like the fundamental tactical business challenges, but they're rather everything that those things exist in. To set some context around this conversation, why has culture and self-compassion been top of mind for you right now? Is there a moment or a story from the past few months that have brought this up for you where you're like, I've been doing a little more reflecting and thinking about this and it's come up a lot more in conversation. What's been sort of the inspiration behind these two topics? Well, so big piece, it's not just the last couple of months, but really I would say in the last probably mm-hmm. 10 years. Culture has been really a cornerstone of what I've learned through leadership and how to really get people together and have them harmonize in a way where we can be successful. You know, I see culture as the social contract of how we interact, how we behave. It's how we do what we do and and how we do that in our larger organization. And I always find that there's an aspirational aspect to culture as well. And technology companies, all kinds of companies, you know, when you're growing, you're going to make mistakes and it's hard. And, you know, what I had grown accustomed to in the past is that, you know, we always talk about failure and fail fast and you, what do you learn from that? But it's always the external and, you know, where self-compassion comes in with this intersection of culture is, you know, there's the culture of how do I treat myself? Because we mainly focus on culture as the external. 
And so where self-compassion comes in is what's the culture that I have with myself about how do I treat myself? How do I do what I do? And with self-compassion, what I've learned is it's, I think it's probably the biggest equalizer that I've found that when we're growing up, we typically, it's like, here's what you did wrong. Here's what you have to correct. And, and things are constantly being pointed out. And so we can take that on as that negative voice internally. There's something wrong with me. And what I try to do with culture and bringing that together with self-compassion is there's nothing wrong with you. This is the human condition that we're in. We learn by experience. And if we can take the experience and be compassionate with ourselves, and we can talk about self-compassion more about what it means and treat myself with kindness, then I have a much different perspective. You know, I take it as we're all love, loving, and lovable. And so anything that stands in the way or any voice in your head that say, no, you're not enough, then to turn towards that with compassion for yourself. And then I have a perspective of, I may have done something wrong, but it's not me that is intrinsically wrong. Kind of the difference between shame and guilt. That's how I've seen it. And with literally every entrepreneur I've worked with, they've all run into the same thing about, wow, this didn't go the way I expected. Ugh something's wrong with me. And it's like, oh, no, nothing is. It means is you're on the cutting edge. And when you're on that edge, you're going to fall over a lot. If you can have the perspective of kindness with yourself, then you can start to move forward. So to follow along the last thing that you mentioned, you wrote this article about navigating hypergrowth. And there was a mm -hmm. quote you shared with it that really resonated because it spoke to a lot of that self-doubt. And so you'd mentioned recognize that when you're in uncharted territory, that's precisely when the negative head talk creeps in. And when mm -hmm. I read that, that registered so deeply because for many folks jumping into engineering leadership, oftentimes it's uncharted territory. Oftentimes people fell into that role, optimizing for skills that were in sort of a different area. And so then it became very quickly, you feel like you don't have the right skill set or you feel like you're not doing enough. And so when I heard that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so relatable. And then the other side of that, and like what you just mentioned, is the antidote to self-doubt is compassion. And that also really resonated. Normally we ask this question towards the end, but I thought it was so powerful. Could you share a few strategies to overcome that self-doubt? Sure. But let's talk about self-compassion because it feeds straight into this whole self-doubt. I think, you know, one, self-doubt is pervasive across all of us, right? And so it's not that something's wrong with me if I have doubt. It's more of how do I meet that and move into that? And so what I look at is any kind of negative feelings, I'm not trying to move away from it. I'm trying to actually really dial up curiosity and say, oh, what's actually here? First step in self-doubt is face it. Don't try to run away from it or try to explain it away. If you've ever been around a little kid, they have something to say and they'll come up and it's like start poking your leg. It's like three years old and say, like, hey, I've got something. I got something. If you ignore them, what do they do? They just keep going more and more and more. And, but if you turn to them and say, yeah, what do you have to say? They'll just let you know. And then like, okay, done. And so it's, you know, the first thing is look at it and face it. Second piece, you know, you have to be able to name it. There's this whole kind of little saying, you have to name it to tame it. So if I can name what's actually going on, then physiologically, it's like, ah, oh, you've got the message. I can actually start dialing down now. And so face it, name it, and then engage with it and say, what are you actually trying to tell me? What's the underlying message that's here? Another really powerful question is, how old do I feel in this moment? The voice in your head that's saying, oh, you're not good enough and you can't do this. 
then being quiet with it and asking it, how old do I feel in this space? And typically you'll find that you feel like a much, much younger version of yourself. And then from that place, ah, oh, I'm actually giving compassion to that younger part of myself. And there's a whole thing around self-reliance. My adult me can actually embrace the younger part of me, which is typically where the self-doubt is coming from. It's this frozen aspect of ourselves. Another powerful thing you can do is actually tell that part of yourself how old you actually are. And many times there's amazement. It's like, wow, seriously? This is all happening internally. From there, I find that a lot of that starts to dissipate. A lot of the energy of it starts to dissipate. And then finding humor in it, you know, is another powerful way of dealing with self-doubt. Not laughing at yourself, but laughing at some of the underlying beliefs. It's like, oh, wow, that's kind of a silly belief that I've been carrying around. But if you don't face it, it just tends to build up noise and build up noise and build up noise because I don't want it. And when we run away from things we don't want, they just amplify. Do you have an example with yourself or when you're helping other people using the mechanism to face self-doubt? One of the things I've learned, I didn't coin the term, but do you remember stop, drop, and roll? It's a very North American. So if you didn't, if you didn't go to elementary school in North America, what stop, drop, and roll is, is we teach kids this all the time. When you're on fire, then don't run because that just fans the flame. So you stop, drop to the ground, and then roll. So I use that same thing around self-doubt or negative talk. If you continue with the negative talk, it just reinforces itself. So stop, acknowledge it, and stop. You can even stand up, change your posture, say stop. And the drop is you drop into your breath, drop into your body, drop into your heart, and then you roll in self-compassion. And the self-compassion kind of mantra is, this is a moment of pain. Everybody feels pain. I'm not alone. And may I be kind and gentle to myself. That action of, you know, something's going on around self-doubt, just saying, stop. I'm not being angry at it. You know, I'm just saying, ah, it's time to stop. And so drop in and then roll in self-compassion. Got some other mantras around that as well. But, you know, that's one of the basic ones is to be able to see it and don't fight it, but just really meet it in a compassionate way. Disrupting the habit or pattern for folks who maybe aren't doing that, I'm thinking because you know we just finished up our our summit, and that was a very intense period where we you know, were planning the production for many months, and then the production day itself was very long. And so, the pattern I felt the next week was very much about you know wake up and I still have this sense of urgency or panic related to like, am I going to get this done? I don't know if we're going to be able to do it. And this morning, like with what you shared, really resonated because I, I went for a little walk this morning and I went into the the woods in the back of, of where we live. And I just sort of stopped. I started focusing on my breath because there's like beautiful trees. And I was like, why do I feel so panicked? And just in that moment of awareness, like helped calm everything down and to just become, I guess, ready to, to try something new. And, and so with what you shared, the pattern there, to me, seems like a really powerful way to disrupt probably the unconscious way that people could go through a day, which could be unconscious panic or unconscious anxiety. And so that just really resonated because it sort of spoke really concretely what I thought worked for me this morning, which was great. Yeah. And what I hear from you as well is that was more mindful awareness, right? And mm -hmm. what I mean by mindful awareness, I'm aware of this, but I'm not beating myself up about it. You know, and the mindfulness is, you know, I'm aware of what's happening without judgment against myself or another. And I think that's, that's the big key. 
a lot of time I feel once you have the self-doubt or being uncomfort, that reaction of being anxious or feel guilty or shame, it's almost happens immediately. So it feels like it's one thing. It's not separated. So I think it's really important to be able to create spaces and let people feel that they are actually separate things, the reaction and what you observe. So Kim, I'm curious whether you have any advice for people to do that more effectively. Yeah, absolutely. I think the big thing is, where are you right now? Am I in my head? Or am I in my body? And I would say 99% certainty when that's happening, we're actually in our heads by just simply touching your arms, your, your abdomen, your leg tension to your breath. If you can get into your body, then I think the perspective shifts drastically. As you're regulating, as you're feeling something, if you can get back into your body, then we have a much better sense of groundedness in the moments. And so, you know, a technique that you can use is, you know, just feeling, am I in my body? Where am I? Ah, can I feel my feet on the floor? Can I feel my butt in the seat if you're in the middle of a meeting? You know, a little technique is, can you rub your fingers together with just the right pressure so I can feel the ridges of my fingertips. It takes real attention in order to do that. And so when you move your attention to something that's more physical within you, then you can have much more presence versus, you know, the crazy tape in your head just running nonstop. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. We were talking a little bit about culture, and there are a couple of things that you mentioned that really stood out to me. You define culture as a social contract, how we do what we do and how we behave. And you also talked about the aspirational nature of culture. And so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about when the reality of our culture fails to sort of meet the aspiration of the culture that we want. How have you seen folks that you work with resolve that gap or examples of people that have resolved that gap? I think, you know, having an aspirational aspect to your culture is a really good positive thing. You know, I've worked with different companies as they're trying to define their culture. And it's like, no, we're, we can't define it that way because they're not there yet. And say, like, well, you want to make sure just like your vision or your mission that it's something that is drawing you towards. There needs to be that aspirational aspect. The fact that we're not always acting in that particular way, part of it is normalizing. The simple act of saying, here's our aspiration and here's where we were off. First, do we actually see those same two things? Do you realize that we were off or where you were off? And so one, just kind of taking it straight back to, are we on the same page? That conversation doesn't happen from a shaming standpoint. Where I find it effective is meeting the situation with curiosity, getting on the same page, and then having a conversation. And the way I like to talk about it is, I have this little mantra, I say, clear and direct with curiosity and compassion. Don't talk around it. This may be a challenging conversation. Here's what I observed, and I'm curious, or I wonder what might be happening. You know, if it's something that's out of character, 
you know, for the individual, then let them know that and really bring a curious, open heart to the situation. And then it provides much more emotional safety for them to be able to walk in and explore versus you're wrong. Now I need to show you exactly how you're wrong. You need to admit how wrong you are and you need to be really sorry for how wrong you are. That creates no safety for anyone. And it's probably, well, who knows what the culture is, but it's not a culture I would want to be in. Another thing I would add, if you're a leader, own your mistakes, especially if they're around culture, or if they're around more interpersonal. You know, the technical mistakes people will own more, but when it's more of the personal mistakes that they've made, when they've stepped out with culture, or they just haven't treated somebody with, with respect, man, own that. We were talking about self-compassion and you shared face it, name it, engage with it. It, it sounds like a similar pattern in, in a way, but it's a little bit more relational and people to people. And if something happens that doesn't achieve the aspirational nature of the culture you're trying to achieve, face it, name it, and engage with it with curiosity and, and directness and compassion. Am I ma manufacturing that similarity in the pattern? Or are those like transferable things that you can apply both personally, internally, and then externally culture? Absolutely, they're transferable. I, I look at community. So we talk about community a lot, but there's also this internal community that we have as well which is, you know, my emotional self, if you want to call it a different self, an intellectual self, my physical self, and a spiritual self. I'm having a dialogue with all of these different parts of me with clarity, with compassion. I can also do that externally. So they absolutely translate internally and externally. We're all people. And I think intrinsically, very much, we want the same kinds of things. I want to be heard. I want to be respected. I want to be able to matter and have some kind of make some kind of a difference. And that's internal and that's that's external. So I think all of these skills are absolutely transferable. That kind of relieves like we're, we're not teaching separate frameworks here. Like, I guess that kind of relieves like some of the, the pressure. We, we talked a little bit about the framework of face it, name it and engage with it. Are there other ways that in an engineering team or internally that you would help people have self-compassion? One, I think just even having it as a topic, you know, this is that, that self-compassion is something that we actually value and we find valuable. Not a lot of people talk about compassion or especially self-compassion because usually it's like, oh, self-compassion, that means weak. Self-compassion means complacent. Self-compassion means that, yeah, okay, you know, you're really not going to be improving. But I, I find it very much the opposite. So as leaders, as we can talk about being compassionate with ourselves and others, how do we meet situations, then it helps, again, I use this word quite a lot, normalize. Having the vocabulary in and being clear about what we mean by that, that certainly helps. You know, there's Lots of different authors and different research. You know, one that I like the most is Kristen Neff. Her and Chris Germer, they started the organization called the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. She wrote a book entitled Self-Compassion, which was, you know, incredibly powerful for me. I probably read that about seven, six, seven years ago. In there, they teach a lot of the different techniques. But again, it's about can I be conversant in what's the internal dialogue with me and help other people normalize it and to realize, man, you're not alone. There's nothing wrong with you. I, I think that's one of the big things I hear from so many people that I coach is that they go, oh, man, I thought I was the only one. And when they find out they're not the only one, it's like, oh, thank God. That experience definitely comes up a lot in the peer group conversations that I've been a part of, just in terms of this having the space 
to share challenges where it feels like you're the only person working through whatever business hurdle, relationship challenge, or, or whatever expression that is. And I've seen that almost like the weight being lifted and that that exhale when folks are realizing, oh my God, there are four or five other people who have faced that, have experienced that, or understand that. And so I think that, like you said, being really conversant in that dialogue can really lift a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. And Jerry and I, we've talked about this when we first started conversations I don't know how many years ago, but I'm part of YPO, another professional organization, Young Presidents Organization. They have forum where it's this confidential space of other leaders, you know, peers to be able to talk through, you know, what are some of the challenges that are going on? And one of the biggest advantages of those groups has, you know, the ELC leadership groups are as well. Ah, I'm not alone. And then from that point, we get to learn with each other. And also I remember those conversations early on, like brainstorming how we can be able to add a value for our members, for their career girls and solving problem at work. And you mentioned examples of like your experience, but part of the um, YPO um, Marks of Mind groups, the depth of the conversation is phenomenal. Especially those people are meeting together, not just for a month or a year, it's a decade, a member that you mentioned that you're, you're with. It's long lasting. And that just creates a lot of trust and like a unique space people can feel compassionate and practice that. And you also kind of share that journey. You know, so I think one of the things when you have this more persistent relationship, and by the way, I'm coming up 20 years with the same group that I've been part of. We're actually all meeting again. We've, we're living in all different places in the world, but uh, we're all getting together in the summer with our families as that celebration of the continuity that we've had. And when you have that continuity, then you can see and remind people, you know, I remember something from 15 years ago where you're struggling and that doesn't come up anymore. They're like, oh, wow, I forgot about that. You know, because many times we forget some of the challenges that we have and we're only focused on the one that's right in front of us right now. And it's helpful to have that continuity so other people can remind us, you remember that growth that you've had, kind of like your gratitude jar, Patrick remembering those those good times and also remembering the learnings from the challenging times. You know, all of those are to be celebrated. We've talked a little bit about culture and self-compassion. And I was wondering, for somebody who is like, yes, I want to bring more self-compassion to myself and within my organization, is there a specific practice that we can introduce someone to or a conversation that we can prioritize or make a habit with the organization? Or is there a question that people can ask more consistently that will help change their trajectory to the world of, of greater self-compassion? How do we help folks bring more self-compassion into their organization? A couple of ways. One is, what are you grateful for? Not just professionally, but personally. You know, if we can start to bring more of our whole self into work, then we start to understand each other at a different level other than just knowing each other in the four walls, if there are four walls anymore, you know, in an office or, you know, the flat screen in front of us, but actually humanize each other. You know, so what are we grateful for, for one? Another thing is, what are you feeling? And when I say, what are you feeling? It's actually, what are you feeling versus what are you thinking? You know, I find it really interesting. I ask people this all the time, what are you feeling? And I typically get a response back of thinking, I'm okay. Or it's like, you know, I'm feeling, you know, like, and they'll have some kind of an explanation of something or some kind of a rationalization. It's like, no, what feeling? Like one, two feeling words. 
and it gets people to drop and say, oh, what, what am I actually feeling? And, and if I can be much more in tune with my emotions, then compassion is another emotion. If I'm really connected to myself emotionally, then compassion can flow much more easily from that point. If I see the other person for them, not just the role, the title, what the transactional nature of work can be sometimes, but actually seeing them a person, then compassion flows much more easily from that point. Transcending the transactional nature of work, I think is such a, an important element to call out. And it makes me wonder, like, part of this requires an element of patience. And so part of me is like, how can we help somebody cultivate the patience to then be able to, to develop the, the compassion for this? And so I don't know if, if there was a way that you are able to cultivate that space and patience for other folks to create like this sense of, of compassion. I do. So one is, how are you able to regulate yourself? You know, there's different kinds of studies around about, you know, all it takes is one person to regulate or be regulated in a conversation for everybody else to start to regulate as well. So if someone else is being activated or it's a tense conversation, even if, especially when you're not speaking, feel your feet on the floor and breathe. And, you know, once you can get back into your body, you can regulate. And we pick up on all of these things unconsciously. You know, if somebody walks into the room, they're agitated, they don't have to say a single word. You just know it's like, oh, everybody's back gets up. Somebody comes in a much more calm way or you start to regulate around a conversation, then that helps cultivating patience. It's like, I don't have to solve something immediately. It sounds so simple, but it helps a great deal. You know, that's what this whole stop, drop and roll, the, the drop is, you notice it in three breaths. There's nothing magical about that, but it's, you know, you take three good breaths, you're going to be in a different place. And then patience comes up more naturally from there. I, I love that because it is entirely owned by the individual and that it's not reliant on externalities. And so just the, the simple nature of, as you were sharing, I was feeling the ridges of my fingers again, and it was sort of dropping me down into this like sense of, of mindfulness. So I was like, ah, and I have total control over that. So I love that. I was diving deep into to your article on hypergrowth, Kevin. You mentioned when you're talking about leadership and stepping up in a, as a leader in an environment of hypergrowth, one of the key things as a leader to step up is to identify the top three behaviors that help you succeed as a leader, and then to prioritize doing those three things to make sure that as you're navigating a, an uncertain and ever-changing environment that a hypergrowth company can be, you have this foundation of things that you know help you become your, your best. And I was wondering if you had the discovery practice to help somebody identify those top three things for them. Is there like an unlocking question that you ask folks to help them identify that? A few questions. Remember a time when you felt powerful, when you felt grounded, and then what preceded that? What other qualities were present with you in that moment? So I think that's one of them. Another one is asking other people, where do you find where I am providing the most value, where you find that I'm helping more? You know, so it's just being curious with other people and asking them, because many times we're hard on ourselves. And if we can ask others and get reflections from others, then, then that certainly helps. And I think the other one is, where do I find myself most off kilter, disconcerted, 
and what precedes that as well. Because many times it's where do I feel powerful, but also where do I feel disempowered? And then looking at if I can address that, if I can actually face that, then that in many times, the, the strength that you have, the ability to face the challenge, there is where you discover where some of the other real powers are. Because when we ignore things, they just persist. And by actually diving in and doing that inner work, then what happens is you end up finding really ultimately what are your key strengths. Those are incredible self-reflection questions. Thank you. We have a couple rapid-fire questions prepared for you, Kevin, if you are ready to dive in. Okay. What are you reading or listening to right now? I've got three different books that I'm in the middle of. One of them is No Bad Parts by Dr. Richard Swartz. He is a phenomenal psychiatrist. The other one is, actually happens to be on my desk here, um, The Mission Myth, which is uh, written by Deirdre Maloney. And it's about how nonprofits are thriving through good business practices. I work with a number of nonprofits. And another one is Understanding Reality, which is uh, more of a Buddhism book. You might find a trend in all of those things too. That's great. I have so many follow-up questions. I used to work in the nonprofit space. So the mission myth, that one particularly resonated as a, a good one to pick up. Is there a, a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? Yeah, I think self-compassion. You know, that little self-compassion mantra, and they kind of wrapped it around that stop, drop, and roll. But it's, this is a moment of pain, just calling it out with the awareness, I'm not alone. And being kindness to myself. That one tool of just stopping the chatter and then reaffirming, what do I want? I just want to be kind to myself. And then from there, take the perspective of the world looks very different when I know I don't suck and a loser. And so stopping to get perspective. And then you go off and solve what's actually there. What is a trend that you're observing or following that you find really interesting? Or maybe it's something that hasn't hit the mainstream yet. Well, this one's kind of hit the mainstream, but the trend is the almost hatred for othering. You know, we other people so much, especially in America right now, we're seeing it all over the world. The trend of othering is something that I'm really following and trying to find out, you know, how, how do I actually make some kind of an impact? And this is where self-compassion really comes in. But, you know, it's probably not one for the whole technology <laughs> space is what more of your your listeners are looking at, but that's one of the things that I'm really looking at. You shared some really great questions with us so far today. Is there a particular question that's your favorite or most powerful question that you love to ask or be asked? What does success mean to you? I think it's a powerful question. What is achievement for you? And then what are you feeling? I'm actually feeling, feeling, not just thinking. Those are, those are three powerful questions that I use quite often. You've also shared so many great quotes and mantras with us already today. And the last question is, is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that really resonates with you? There's one, William James, who's kind of the father of, of psychology. He has a quote that says, my experience is what I agree to attend to. And there's a whole bunch to unpack in that. But it's, Again, it's taking ownership. It's my experience. How am I experiencing? What's the internal framework that I have around this is what I agree to attend to. You know, so if that, you know, self-doubt, negative talk is there, 
and I give it any kind of credence, then that's what I attend to. I suck and I'm a loser versus, oh, no, I'm not. That's what I found as a, as a really powerful quote. You know, my experience is what I agree to attend to. A really powerful way to wrap up our conversation. Kevin, just wanted to say thank you for sending us down a topic that we don't get a chance to spend enough time on. And I think everything you shared around self-doubt is so relatable and I know it's going to have a, a big impact on the folks listening in. So just a, a big thank you for, for sharing your time and your experience and expertise with us. Absolutely welcome. It's a delight. And I would love to discuss the topic even more whenever you want to. Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from our conversation with Kevin Ayers. To eliminate negative self-talk, you have to name it, face it, and engage with it. So when negative self-talk comes up, dial up your curiosity, name what you're experiencing because you have to name it to tame it, and then you have to engage with it. Seek to understand what are the negative emotions or self-talk actually trying to tell you? What's the underlying message there? Another practice when these negative emotions or self-talk pop up, ask yourself, how old am I when I'm experiencing this emotion? Oftentimes you'll feel younger or less mature. So when you observe this, remind yourself of the absurdity of the underlying belief that you are X years old, when in fact you're actually 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, however old you really are, when noting that observation and the absurdity, you might find that the energy of those negative emotions may dissipate. How do you cultivate compassion in yourself and in your team? First is you need to get out of your head and ground yourself. So focus on the physical parts of your being. So focus on feeling your butt in the seat, your feet on the floor, or the ridges of your fingertips. Consider what are you grateful for? Not just professionally, but personally. Ask yourself, what are you feeling? And focus on the feeling word and not thinking or rationalization. When you're connected to your emotions, then compassion can flow more easily. To cultivate patience and space to be compassionate, if you're not speaking in a meeting, feel your feet on the floor and breathe three good breaths. What happens is people pick up on those things subconsciously. So when you are grounded, other people will start to mimic and mirror. Three questions to help you identify the top three behaviors that help you succeed as a leader. Remember a time when you felt powerful. What preceded that? What qualities were present at that moment? The second question, ask other people, where am I providing the most value? And the third question, where do I find myself most off or disempowered? And what preceded that? When you feel overwhelmed or negative self-talk is creeping in, remember the stop, drop, and roll. Stop and acknowledge what you're feeling. Drop into your breath and become aware of your breath and heartbeat. Enroll in self-compassion with the mantra, Everybody feels pain. I'm not alone. And may I be kind and gentle to myself. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.